You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining. The 1967 rebellion inspired a vicious and violent response from Detroit police who were deployed by city officials to be sure that black Detroiters never again pushed back against authority. The clearest incarnation of that response was the creation of STRESS, a special unit of the police department that was sold as a way to bring safety to city streets and neighborhoods. In reality, it was a mechanism for targeting African-American men, and its brutality led to the deaths of 24 people, 22 of whom were black, over the course of three and a half years. Stress was the focus of Coleman Young's run for mayor in 1973, and when he was elected, he disbanded the unit. Now there's a film about the rise and fall of stress in Detroit. Dare to Struggle, Dare to Win makes its Michigan debut this Sunday at the Detroit Film Theater as part of the Freep Film Festival. We're going to take a quick listen to a part of uh, the film. We're going to begin with uh, retired officer Paul Van Wee, who was in stress unit one, talking about a violent encounter he had with the unit while looking for a gun in someone's house. One of our stress officers had an M1 carving and he took it and he swung it upwards so hard, hit this guy in the forehead, and he broke the stock on an M1 carving. And then he made another comment that wasn't too complimentary to us. And uh, he was wearing tennis. So another stress officer took a, either a carving or a shotgun and went bam. And I'm sure he probably broke several toes. So now, of course, we've got to lock them up because they're injured. Shouldn't happen that way, really. It was a little overkill, but too bad. you got to follow every single tip. That was former police officer Paul Van Weed describing an encounter uh, he had with stress while looking for a gun in someone's house uh, back in the days after the 67 Rebellion here in Detroit. Joining us now to talk more about Dare to Struggle, Dare to Win, which takes a really close look at stress and a central figure in the pushback to stress is Katie Cockrell. She is the executive producer and the daughter of Ken Cockrell Sr., who was that activist. Katie, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks for having us. Also with us is uh, Christopher Gruss. He's the director of Dare to Struggle, Dare to Win. Christopher, welcome to Thank Detroit you. Today. Thanks for having us, Stephen. Appreciate yeah. it. So, Katie, I can remember when you first told me that you wanted to tell this story. It was a few years ago. Uh, but but talk about why go back now in 2019 and examine these things. What's the relevance of the story you're telling here to modern-day Detroit. Yeah, sure. I mean, you're right. It was a few years ago. It's definitely been a labor of love for Christopher and myself and, and the rest of our team. Um, and initially, this really, the the origin of the project really kind of dates back to um, my uncle and some of our, our close family members really wanting to find a way to memorialize my late father. And um, in that conversation, I kind of, we landed on the, the fundamental point being that it's really important to tell um, not only my father's story, but the story of of Detroit in that era and the revolutionary movements that very much kind of colored uh, where we are today. And I felt the best way to do that was really to just tell the story and, and through the um, kind of using film as that medium. Um, and I think why it's so, unfortunately, it's it's still so timely and so relevant because many of the things that 
we see in the film and that, that uh, Detroiters faced at that time when stress was in power are things that um, young, predominantly African-American males face today in Detroit and across the country. So um, it also, this is very kind of coincidental, but it also happens to be um, the anniversary of my late father's death. He died in, in 1989. So it all kind of has come full circle. And for us to be, you know, here in Detroit premiering the film as part of this film festival in um, the month of, of his passing is actually kind of fortuitous. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, for people who are either uh, too young to remember your father or just uh, didn't know who he was, talk a little bit about uh, the role he played in fighting against stress and then the role he came to play in Detroit politics and culture. Yeah, so he, unfortunately, I was three when he passed away. So I learned of uh, my father very much through kind of secondhand stories from family and friends. And because he was a prominent figure in the city, I'm fortunate in that, you know, I grew up kind of running into people who knew Ken Cockrell from Wayne State's law campus when he was, you know, pulling together rallies on on campus to, you know, opposition of whatever it was. Um, You know, everyone has a kind of Ken Cockrell story, which has been amazing for me because it's... um, it's been a really kind of interesting way to get to know who he was. Um, but he was an activist attorney. Um, you know, he served a term on Detroit City Council. He um, he started kind of one movement after another, the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, which was designed to, um, you know, kind of demand fair pay and fair play for African-American workers in um, the auto plants at the time, at a time when I, I don't think the UAW was necessarily working for everybody. Um, he, you know, he, he used the legal system, um, on more than one occasion to affect change for black people in Detroit who didn't have a voice. Um, you know, he kind of went up against the institute, used the institution, uh, against itself, if you will. And we talk, I mean, there are many instances and initially when Christopher and I, and the rest of the team and I sat down and started kind of talking about this, it was around the 67 anniversary and we were thinking about doing Mm -hmm. something kind of tied to, that and there, because there are so many layers um, with with my dad. When you start to kind of so many kind of ma- major incidents that mm-hmm. we could have focused Absolutely. on, we landed on stress because it's um, really kind of a it's the one of the best illustrations of you know not only this kind of idea of of enacting change through revolution, but in using these kind of institutional systems and and um, turning them on their head uh, to affect change. And so that's very much kind of who he was and what he was about. And I think this this uh, piece of his story and the story of stress is a really good way to kind of. And one of the things too is it was really important for us to not make this cradle to the grave story really of Ken and touching on every milestone that he had. We wanted to take a deeper look into what he was doing because he had so many monumental cases as James Johnson case, which Katie somewhat referenced with, you know, he he actually murdered two people at, at his factory due to what he faced every day from being called boy and things like that. Ken had all these monumental cases, but and looking at it, there it was so broad that we we wanted to define it more. And once, you know, we talked to Sheila, her mom, that was the first interview we did and started to realize what stress was. And mm-hmm. there was really not a lot of information about that. But once we were able to tie those two together, we realized we had this massively compelling story to, to tell. Yeah. Uh, to talk about putting that story together i I watched the film last night uh after katie sent me a a nice link to it (laughs) (laughs) Um, i was like it'll be a great thing to watch before you go to bed right i'll sleep like a baby after watching this (laughs) um you know it's a it's it's 
wonderfully uh, shot and told. Uh, oh, thank you. And and I always wonder about the choices you yeah. make about footage and well, every, interview if, and how you weave it all together. We all perceive things differently. If if we see something happen, you you and I are going to tell the story differently, mm-hmm. right? We did our first interview with Sheila in April three years ago. And just to, she's kind of the orator of all this in a way. Like she, we would go to Sheila with all, every question. I had a million of them. <laughs> and from Sheila onward, we, we interviewed 42 subjects uh, in Detroit, in New York, in, in California, because Ken kind of, you know, he, he was everywhere. Um, and what really changed the, the landscape of the film was we were able to obtain footage of the stress officers. Right. Yeah. And that's when we started to really tie in and, and really build the narrative. Because with the documentary, you're almost working retroactively. It's not like you're working off a screenplay. Everybody you interview, you, you, it, there's a tendency to go down a rabbit hole of what each subject <laughs> says. So sure. you have to really be focused and true to what that story is and what that message was. And once we started to dig into what stress was and what Ken and his cohorts and, and the community were able to affect and stop them, it, it became to resemble what is happening right now. And, and, and in a way, you know, we need the leadership that we had then. And that started to build and inform the story more of showing more of the activism and Ken using the judicial system to affect change and bring down such a horrific unit like stress. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, WDET's Sam Bobian composed the score for this film along with his bandmates in Will Sessions. Uh, Detroit Today producer Jake Neer spoke with Sam about the unconventional way this score was composed and created this audio postcard from that conversation. Chris didn't want us to compose the music beforehand for the film. He wanted us to come in and experience the film and then play what we're experiencing while we're watching it, which is something I had never done before, which is kind of a dream for any musician. You know, Miles Davis did a film score like that where he watched the film and then played it live. Um, So it's kind of a really cool thing to do. And this film is, it's a really heavy film. You know, there's a lot of emotional content, you know, and so... It gives you a lot of stuff to use as a composer when you're, when, you're, when you're playing live. So what they did was they brought us into the studio and they put the, the film on, on a big screen TV, and we watched it and we played live to the scenes that he wanted us to play to. So some of the stuff we played was like straight up ambient stuff or abstract scenery stuff, different grooves, and he was right there in the room with us telling us, you know, you know do this or do that. And uh, it was really cool because we got to experiment with a lot of things we wouldn't normally do. You know, our bass player needed to make a weird noise on his bass. He picked up a box, a cardboard box off the ground and kind of rubbed it across the strings. I was playing weird chord clusters on the keyboards. The drummer got to do different textures on his drums that he normally wouldn't do. Uh, So it was really exciting to do that and also to be a part of a film like this that really has a, a strong message behind it and it really is something that we need to know is a really important part of our past. That was just one of those days that just felt right. You know, we went in the studio and I remember when we got done, I was like, wow, we got a lot done. And I've kind of thought, be honest with you when 
Chris asked us to do it, I was like, that's not going to really work. I mean, that sounds like an idea that someone has that doesn't actually make music. Like, come to the studio and I'll put the film on and just play because I want things to be perfect. I want to take time at home to write these scenes, to to think about it, to compose horn parts or whatever I got to do. But he really wanted us to have our, our initial reaction and capture that. So while he was playing it, he was also kind of conducting us, like how he wanted, if he wanted the energy to come up, he would kind of show us that with his hands. And it was just, I don't know, it just kind of came together. For most of the time, it was only like a couple takes. Some of them were one, some of them were two or three. Uh, we didn't do any more than that. It was. Not, we were just, it was just one day in the studio. It wasn't even a full day. The creative process is a lot different, especially for like advertising. That's why I've done a lot of television commercials and stuff like that, but not in this capacity. And it's, it really was a really inspiring moment and made me look as a composer about making music differently, you know, to like trust your instincts in those, in those moments rather than overthinking things, you know, listening in a different way, like taking a visual element and then putting that through music. That was WDET Sam Bobian talking about how he composed the score for Dare to Struggle, Dare to Win, a look back at the stress unit of the Detroit Police Department and a central figure in the city's pushback against that unit, uh, Ken Cockrell Sr. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've tuned in. My guests are Katie Cockrell, who is the executive producer of Dare to Struggle, Dare to Win, also the daughter of Ken Cockrell Sr. Uh, also with us is Christopher Groose. He's the director of Dare to Struggle, Dare to Win. So when you listen to Sam talk about that, I mean, yeah. uh, it's really interesting the way you approached uh, the, the this, this sort of... Uh, uh, unorthodox, I guess, scoring of the film. It's unorthodox in, in some ways, but in, in, in a lot of cases it's not. I mean, that's how you cinematically score with, with an orchestra, if you will, um, at a major studio. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And it was important for me. I've known Sam for a long time, back to when we, my band used to play Funk Night with his. So we, we've had a friendship for quite a long time. And I knew the 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 texture of the film and what we were discussing was was really heavy. But there's also some lighthearted moments in a way and Sam and Will Sutton's vibe really fits so well with what the music already was that we had in the film and also what Ken was listening to in the time you know we have like Yusef Latif, Ella Kute, mm -hmm. um, you know Gil Scott Heron and you know knowing Sam and, and his music you know taste and, and what Will Sutton's brings it was that was a no-brainer and in the film I mean making the film to be frank it it was heavy, you know, you go through, I was going through like a really dark period making this because you're just listening to, to just horrific stories after, after horrific story. Yeah. And I will say in, in composing that the day that we scored a lot of the film, that was, that was a really wonderful, bright spot in, in the making of mm. this. Like I, I still cherish that day and think about it a lot because it's something as a filmmaker you always want to, you know, always want to do. And I'm just thankful for Sam and, and the and the guys for coming out and, and and it's not it's it's brilliant. It's not even like it, it <laughs> it's not even that it supports the film. It is it's imbued in the film. Their their stylings and um the film wouldn't be what it is without them. Yeah, yeah no, it was wild. He's like under <laughs> underplaying that. <laughs> having been <laughs> having been a, a pure observer, um, to watch like to watch Christopher, you know, and and Sam and the Will Sessions crew 
bring it to life and to ha- to see on screen what was happening and, and watch kind of their reaction and then have it translate into what viewers ultimately see and hear is nuts. Maybe that is how like major studios <laughs> do it, but it, it yeah, felt like course, it was yeah. a wild <laughs> it was moment. There was a lot of improvisational things. <laughs> happening, so so yeah. one of the things that really strikes me in the film is and we heard a clip of this to to open the segment. You know the police officers who talk to you, Katie, and I, I, I'm really curious, uh, given how close this material is to you personally, how that felt to sit and talk with police officers who, in some cases, are not terribly remorseful about what they did. Yeah. So the really interesting part of this film is is actually that we didn't. Uh, capture the the footage uh, with the officers themselves. Uh, we were able to obtain the footage from a gentleman who's the son of one of those officers. That's right. The That's right. Yeah, we licensed the footage. We licensed the footage, yeah. Um, so he had had those conversations uh, directly with the officers over the course of a few years, uh, over the course of the same kind of period that we were. Um, but so there's a kind of distance then. So there's a bit of, a bit of distance, and we we obviously we talked to him and we talked to him about having those conversations firsthand. Uh, but but just and there's more more footage than what we've used in the film. And and you're right. I mean these these are people who um, firmly believe that they were just doing their job, and um, you know which at that time was obviously very much, in my opinion, very much rooted in, you know, kind of inherent and institutional racial prejudice. And so you see that come through. And yeah, I mean, quite frankly, like, it's insane to me that these are people who have, you know, continue to live their lives with no remorse for their actions. I mean, 22 murders inside of that tiny period of two and a half half years Mm -hmm. is, that's not, you know, and have that be sanctioned by the city by the department it's i mean it's it's insane and i don't want to say you become desensitized after seeing it a lot because you just forget what people's reaction is going to be when they first see it and we've done a couple private screenings and and been at a couple film festivals and you forget the reaction that people are going to give when you hear a white officer saying the n-word about Mm -hmm. murdering somebody and and just the no remorse and the way they talk about it is it's so off-putting and alarming and and the fact that they they had time to come to terms with what they did and and recompense and and you know remorseful whatever there it's not there and and that's what is is frightening in a way well and that's one of the things that i think casts the film forward right Uh that's Mm -hmm. one of the things that really echoes some of the things we hear people say now some of the things we see people do now uh, you see it in the eyes of those officers in the film yeah, and if you look at that time period after '67, and 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 the the gap of our or the period of our film takes place between '67 and, and '73 after the rebellion, and there was an opportunity to bridge the gap between African Americans and 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 the police, and and instead of making it better, they they made it much much worse. They by, doubled down by, on yeah. on brutality. And, and, I mean, there's and, no other way and, to see that. And I think we should talk about what stress was doing for a second. Well, yeah, we, we sorry, would. Sorry. All right, we've got a. Well, we could be here all day talking about this, <laughs> but uh, I do have to, to end the show. I want to thank you both for being here, and note that this film will be shown 4 p.m. Sunday, April 14th, at the Detroit Film Theater at the DIA. It will be followed by a panel discussion that I'm going to host, and will feature my guests, Executive Director Katie Cockrell, Director Christopher Goose, as Bruce, as well as Katie's mother, Sheila Cockrell. So. Uh, 
tickets are available still, I think, for that. So uh, you can come and watch the film and hear us talk a little more about it than we did just here. Uh, this is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, a community service of Wayne State University. I'll be back tomorrow. Hope you will, too. I'll talk with you then.